He was lovely, he was down to earth, he had a heart of gold. He was caring, you know, he he had lots of friends. And he'd come home like he'd I'd have dinner ready for him and he'd just relax and on a honeymoon then he wouldn't tell me where he was bringing me. He told everybody else except me where we were going. And I found out actually by accident I stood behind him at Dublin Airport and the woman said, we'll be sending your bags directly to Mauritius. Well, I nearly went green in the face because I do not like aeroplanes. And it was lovely. It was two weeks of it was brilliant life. But he always liked that kind of thing, you know, um, surprising me with stuff. Always had some surprises for me. He was mad. He had a Cork accent. He picked it up very fast. I don't know how or where he got it from. But that now with a bit of a twang and just a little bit of French. It's just strange to hear. Uh, oh, he was the best, I suppose. As the search operation moves into its seventh hour, little hope remains of finding any of the four crew members alive. Since daylight, lifeboat crews, the Shannon-based Coast Guard helicopter, local fishermen and the Navy searched the seas off Mizzen Head. So far, only debris thought to be the remains of fish boxes has been sighted. There's also a strong smell of diesel in the area. The alarm was raised at around 3 a.m. when a satellite link distress signal was picked up. Three hours after the Castle Town Bear registered St. Gervais trawler sailed out, conditions last night were described as good, although a two-metre swell was reported close to where the boat is thought to have gone down. It's thought the men may have been asleep in their bunk after putting the boat on autopilot when it went into difficulties. Naval divers have now arrived on the scene, but as the rescue effort continues with little success, relatives and friends in Castle Town Bear fear the worst. It was the 22nd of November which was a Wednesday. We were pottering around the house. I was in the kitchen, Jack out the backyard. He was making me pots for flowers and he was also doing up the bedrooms, you know, a bit of decorating. Um, it was a beautiful day. It was absolutely fabulous. Um, he was just walking around, doing nothing, relaxing, making the most of his time ashore. So... I uh, about quarter twelve. Jack got his working gear ready. Got his working gear on, and we left the house at ten to twelve. And we walked down the pier. And on the way down, he said that the weather was getting bad for Friday, and that they'd be coming back in, maybe Thursday night. And I walked down as far as the the end of the pier, and I just said, "We'll see you on Friday, and have a good trip." And he said, okay, and he said, see you later. Oh, he loved fishing. He was fishing for years in France before he decided to come to Ireland. And he got a job in the co-op with the help of Father Sean O'Shea. 
and he was working in the fish factory for I think a few months and eventually got a fishing berth with one of the trawlers in town and he was at that ever since he loved fishing he didn't want to do anything else that was his life I thought it was mad really going out there working for nothing really At about 8 o'clock, there was a bang on the door. I came downstairs, saw three people through the glass. I opened the door, and there was my mother, my father, and Dr. Donovan, who was now gone from the town. Um, they All they told me was there was an accident, that there was fish boxes found floating at the top of the water, there was oil and diesel, and the Gervais was gone down. And I just just stood there in shock. I didn't know what to do. I was numb. Then I thought, oh, they'll be fine. You know, there's the life raft. They'll have got into the life raft. They'll all be fine. And during the day, I was listening to news every hour on the hour. And they said there was no bodies found. And then that evening, the divers went down and... They found the wreck first and at the galley they found a body. So the body was brought into Castletown that evening, I think about seven o'clock. So they brought the body over to the, the hospital anyway and I went over with my friend and um, they said it was Jack's body inside on the, in the room. So I got myself all ready and all nervous, like not knowing what to expect or what to see, like... So I went in anyway, and from a, from a, from afar it looked like him. But I got closer and closer, and I don't know what possessed me to look at his hands, but he had tattoos or uh, letters uh, engraved in his knuckles. And there I told the guards and whoever else was there that it wasn't Jack's body, that it wasn't Kieran's body, and it wasn't um, Gary's body, that it must be the, the new chap that was on board. So I went out and his girlfriend was called in then and I went home and just waited for more news and then they found another body and it turned out to be Kieran, the second chap who who was on the boat. And he wasn't he was only on the boat. He was only on the boat about two years, three years the most. He was only seventeen, eighteen, maybe nineteen. And the divers kept searching and searching and searching and they never ever found Jack or Gary's body. It's a long time now, it's over a year and there's no chance of finding a body. Like there's boats fishing down off around that area and if they find anything it'd be maybe a skull, maybe a bone, maybe something close or something. But 
doubt it very much. The weather is very, very bad down there. Well, Jack was a fisherman. I think that's probably where he'd want to be, how he'd want to go. And if they found part of him, no, they should leave there. Jack was a fisherman, and um, that's what he would have wanted if he died at sea to be just left there. You know, not if somebody found his body. I I couldn't have it. Be like digging a grave, a body's grave, a body up from a graveyard. You know, you let them where they are. Let them at peace. At this stage now, I wouldn't want his body to be found. That's where he is, and that's where he should stay. Well, I'd known him since I was growing up because it, his grandfather, or his, his father even, came from next door to us in Crookhaven and came to Castle and got married in Castle. So Danny Boy used to be down on holidays in the summer with his grandmother. And uh, we used to be all playing together in, the, in our backyard, so I knew him very well. Right through and... Then we fished together on, on a boat before Danny Boy bought the Exodus and I went with him then. You know, so we were... We knew each other fairly well. That was right to life. Oh, Danny Boy was a... He was a great character. He was... <laughs> he was great fun. I don't think we'd meet any little same thing. Any other boys about him. He was a great old sport. He was always good to everyone, you know... People that started here first, it always, you know, you could go three or four weeks without making money, fill us in other boats, you know, as well, and it. Then they would always give him a open. Then he was a good man. He always made sure that he never went home without money, you know, when I was fishing with him, even if we didn't make money. If it wasn't coming for two or three weeks, he'd make sure that I had enough, I had money still going home. He was a terrible man to go drinking with because he wouldn't let you buy the drink. He'd keep buying all day for no matter who he was drinking with. It was a beautiful day. Really good. It's long, lazy swell. The visibility was perfect. You could see 20 miles. And um, we hauled in the morning, hauled our nets in the morning, and got a good bit of fish, there was a good bit of fish going. So we cleared the decks and went down back into the galley to have something to eat. And Reddy went down to bed, and I went up to the wheel house at any boy, having, the, having a bit of crack. Then I went back down to bunk, and about an hour later, then the, 
we were, heard the bang, we could woke up with the, the, this big bang. So that was when the, the boat actually hit us. But we didn't, we didn't realise that at the time, but we came running up and there she was right, the stern of our boat was right up against the bow of theirs, the Spanish boat. So that was about, about it really, I suppose it was. He went away back from us then. And uh, I ran down the cabin again to get life belts, but there's about two feet of water on the cabin floor at the time, so I came back up. And we got the life raft off the top of the wheelhouse and threw it in the water and then the boy went in to make a, a mayday call. And um, the boat went down with him inside the wheelhouse. So he got, if he had stayed outside, he would have been fine, I suppose, but he thought that we might be lost ourselves, I suppose, without it. Because she sank in. Minutes, like about five or six minutes at the most, I'd say, you know. She went down from the time of impact to the time she was she was gone. So if one of us even if one of us had panicked, you know, I'd say I could have that could have been we'd three of us would probably be drowned, you know. Danny Boytra maybe saved us, I suppose, you know. Because he was he he went back in because it looked like the Spanish boat was gone away from us. Because they need a lot of water to turn around and you know the they're awkward, all things. So it looked like she was going, so he thought that she was leaving us. So, of course, he thought he had time enough to make the mayday call. No one thinks she'd have gone down that fast. But uh, he, went, he, went, he, he launched life raft first before he ever went back in to, to make the call. I think he may have made the call first, but he didn't know whether it, was, it had gone out or not. We were in the, in the life raft, ready in myself, and we tried to, to row towards, paddle towards the the boat. The exodus to bow of the boat was still actually under the water, but she came up and went down again. And when she went down again, she sucked anybody down underneath when he was down for maybe 30, 40 seconds. And then he just shot up again and he went limp on top of the water, like... He was just floating on the water. So one of the Spaniards, I think it was the engineer, jumped in off the, the Spanish boat. Well, we tried to paddle for him, but those old life wrestlers, you can't, you can't move them. But they pulled us in any as well. We pulled anybody into the life raft, pulled them up into, pulled them up into the boat, into the, the Spanish boat. So um, then when they got anybody up on the deck, we could see that he was he was in a bad way, but we didn't realise he was actually dead. We didn't realise he was gone at all until uh, a guard came aboard in Bantry and told us that he'd he'd been pronounced dead, and, you know, on arrival at hospital. At that, we thought that they might be able to revive him on the helicopter all the time. You know, we were. We were hopeful, as if and ready. We're, we were hoping that he would be revived. But it was a. It was when we got to Bantry, didn't it? It hit us when this guard, Oliver Goggin, the guard in Bantry, told us 
that he was dead. He, he thought we knew what, he thought we knew all along that he was dead, you know. So it's a bit of a shock for him as well. But, uh, yeah, it was then, then it really hit us that we wouldn't see, that we wouldn't see Danny anymore. Made a call, that was his last, last thing he spoke to us. And we were shouting at him to come out to the widows, but he, it was too late anyway, she went down so fast that he couldn't, he was on the radio when she went, and she actually slipped under. Castletown Bear fisherman Danny O'Driscoll, skipper of the Exodus, drowned after his trawler was holed by a Spanish vessel, the Seahorse. Two crew members on board the Exodus escaped serious injury after they jumped aboard a life raft following the collision. But Mr O'Driscoll stayed behind. The inquest into his death heard from crewman Reddy Kelly that Mr O'Driscoll believed the Spaniards had deliberately rammed his boat. He felt they were moving off again and stayed behind to send a second mayday call. The Exodus sank while he was making that call. His radio went dead in mid-sentence. Trapped in the wheelhouse, Danny O'Driscoll went down with his boat and drowned. The third crewman, Patrick O'Driscoll, told the inquest he believed the incident could have been avoided by the Spaniards. He believes there may have been nobody on watch on board the seahorse and that instead they were all below deck, eating their lunch when the collision occurred. Coroner Patrick Dorgan said it was certainly clear from the evidence that the Spanish vessel was not being navigated according to best practices. The jury returned a verdict that Danny O'Driscoll died from drowning and added a rider encouraging greater safety at sea. First thing I did was into the pillows. When I went up, I just looked and did the radar on standby. And television was in there, that was on standby. So that, that meant that they weren't, they couldn't see what was happening around them, where there were, if there was any objects, if they weren't looking out the windows itself. So that's what's the, and my idea the cause of it was that they weren't keeping a watch. It wasn't that they're, that they're, um, you know, the automatic pilot had actually failed, as I said, because it worked perfect all the way down into Bantry afterwards. We didn't see him coming for us at all. They, were, they came on our, from our stern. They came up along our starboard side and, and, and stern, so you, anybody wouldn't have seen him coming. You could have probably saw him on the radar and think that they'd have passed him by, you know, but um, as for visibility out of the exodus, you wouldn't see... You wouldn't see what was behind you unless you actually put your head out the window and look back. You couldn't see up behind it all. And any of those fishing boats you can't. You can see a head into the sides, you know, but that's about it. That the whole town was completely numb, you could say, like, from it. It was, because every single one knew Denny Boy, he grew up here, went to school here. He was, he was very, very well liked. You know, and everyone knew some funny story about him, that kind of thing, you know. Just, uh, but uh, it was it was really shock. I'd say a lot of people didn't go to work for the on the Monday, you know, they were just they were just so shocked what what happened. The church was packed, joined to the door and way out all down the steps. It was all full, you know, like just cast some way out of the standstill for it. 
and uh, all the fishermen shouldered anybody right around the pier, shouldered the coffin, right around the pier and down into the ferry boat in, which is full of people and the pier was still full. There wasn't enough boats to take the, all the people out of the island. Or half enough boats, you know, you could have. There was such a crowd at it. They came from all over to it. And uh, when we got to Bear Island in, it was the same thing. He was shouldered all the way down to the, to the graveyard as well. And he always said that he'd be he'd be lying under the, the monkey puzzle tree, which is it's the, it's the, the monkey puzzle tree is over the grave, you know, inside or over the, inside the graveyard in Bear Island. I never knew what he was on about before, <laughs> actually. But uh, you know, so it was, there was an awful crowd there. Very, very sad. Very sad, but we went up to the hotel afterwards inside in Bear Island. But everyone had uh, little stories out to anybody, so it, even though they were all upset, everyone remembered little things about him that kind of... You know, it's just... It's nice. It's nice the way, you know, that he got such a send-off. There were some fishing boats around, local buys, and uh, they rang up Castletown here to say what happened. And um, that he was on his way, of course, to Cork. That the other two boys had gone to Bantry. They took those to Bantry. I didn't think he was dead. I mean, Rosemary assumed he was. She, by the way, they were talking. But, but um, anyway, we got up there at about, uh, about five, I'd imagine. And uh, they told us then about the hospital. There was a nurse there and a guard. And... Uh, we were, said we were coming to, you know, for, to, for Danny O'Driscoll to see him. And she nurse said, did they tell you anything? We said, no. And she said, uh, oh, I'm afraid he's dead. And uh, that was that. so pleasant. He was always in great form, no matter what it was. He'd always, and, I, and he used to say, Mom, what are you worrying about? Well, I said, somebody's got to worry. I used to always say, his bills and all that, you know? And I said, oh, God, sake, that's awful. Oh, he said, don't worry. And I said, well, somebody's got to worry. And he, no, nothing ever worried him. Nothing. He was always in the greatest form and full of life. And, uh, but, Anyway, he he would always be, you know, come out here and always be whistling or something. He'd be coming to the door, or you'd always notice he was there. You know, he'd um, he never bothered about much. You know, never uh, he, he didn't like school. That's one thing. 
and he knew he couldn't, he couldn't bear the thought of it. But anyway, he was so delighted that he was finished the, the, the year he finished. Almost, oh, he thought he had no more troubles then. Finished school over, he, the the world was his oyster then. Didn't care. But um, oh, he loved. Of course, he loved fishing. He loved fishing. Could have stayed in the Irish Lights, but he wouldn't. He wanted to go fishing. And. Uh, he spent a few years after leaving school, uh, two years about learning uh, carpenters, to be a carpenter, but he gave that up, he didn't like it. No money, he said, couldn't be bothered with that. If he had a, only a penny, he'd give you a he'd give it to you. He was always like that, and even coming home at night, he'd always, you could hear him, you could come in the door, he'd have chips and chicken, and I'd be asleep. And he'd say, Ma'am, are you weak? And I said, Well, I am now. Well, chicken and chips at maybe one or two o'clock in the morning, and you'd have to sit up and eat them. He'd be sitting there, and he'd say, Come on, Ma'am, we'll have, and he'd have the big spread. Chicken and chips, and I, I certainly didn't feel like chicken and chips at that time. But I'd eat some because you know how chicken and ch- chips has the nice smell from them sometimes. And I used to say, "Oh, well, it's well to eat them anyway, because no good let them get cold." Mm. Great, he was great. He was very good fun, and even I know in town, in the in the locals in town, he was uh, he was uh, always good and. Uh, he had a fairly good voice, you know, and he loved, he loved his own voice, like, he had a fairly good voice now. I wouldn't say that he was a John McCormick or anything like that, but he, he was, uh, he used to sing all right, and even, you know, when he'd be in the bathroom washing now, you could hear him sing, no music, and there's not a bit, he'd come up and turn the, have it on full blast so that he'd hear it below in the, in the, in the bathroom. <laughs> that sort of a fella, Yeah. He, he he was religious more so than me. Some he'd say, he knew that I'd always like him to say the rosary. And uh, he'd say, I'd be looking at television. And he'd say, Mama, are you going to say, tele- are you going to say the rosary? And I said, oh, I will in a minute. Well, hurry on. Well, I said, oh, don't worry. I said, the town will still be there when you go west. And, uh, and in, uh, he'd be going out the door some night and I'd forget it. And I said, oh, I forgot the rosary. Oh, come on then and say it. And, and, and don't, don't be too long about it. <laughs> That's where he because he wanted to get out quick, but all these things you know you remember them. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His anniversary was last Saturday. It was tough, but uh, you know you gradually get over. I don't think you ever get over it really. I don't think anyone would like uh, an accident like that. But um, you know you you. You make the best of it or try to make the best of it. The sea is too much for any anyone. You wouldn't know what way it is, but they're, they always have that fear that something will happen, like something could happen. But they, they get so used to it that they don't take much... I suppose, it, you know, they get used to it after a while and... But... Uh, I suppose we live by the sea all our life and come in going and 
because the sea, he wanted the, the fishing. It often comes up when you think, why should, you know, in the middle of a beautiful sunny day in a flat cam that he hadn't, uh, he hadn't a chance. I suppose he'll never go away at times, it crops up, you see, and you you think, you think, oh, you know, that he, they, he was there in the sea and he could have been saved, I was, but you, I mean, what, who am I to judge? You just have to try and forget it. Try, but it isn't easy. I um, miss him very much, and I cry at night, especially. I wake up, and then I can't sleep anymore, and that's finished. If I've, um, but uh, I will, in time, it'll wear away, of course. It'll have to. The disaster of the seafloor happened over 30 years ago and it happened in the Kinmare Bay. There was five fishermen lost at the time of the tragedy. One of them was my brother John Michael, he was aged 21 years at the time. There was also a cousin of mine from Dursey Island, Noel Sheen, and four others. One of them was a skipper from Bear Island, he was Michael Crowley and a Bernie Lynch from Castletown Bear. And there was also a Nile Crilly from Cork City. And it, the weather was getting bad for the Christmas, so they were they wanted to bring the boat up us from Kilmacalog. There was a little pier there in the Kinmere Bay. They wanted to bring it back to Castletown Bear. So on the, the night that they were doing it, they were coming into the Dursey Sound. That's a narrow stretch of water there between Dursey Island and Dursey Sound. And the weather was very bad and they couldn't get through the sound so the waves were probably breaking through the sound, you know, and the weather wasn't very suitable, so they had to turn back. And it was weather got worse and they were trying to get back into Kimmere for shelter, so on their way back, they went on the rocks there near our groom. The sad thing about it was that it was only a couple of hundred yards from the main road, you know, on the road to Kinmere. And when they went on the rocks, they were there all night and signalling to the mainland you know, for help and things and which was very very sad because they burned everything that was on the boat you know the bunks and the, everything they could find they burned everything on the rock trying to signal to the mainland you know and to a car trying to get help but there was no no help came and I suppose by the time morning came the tide came in they took to the sea and that was the end you know and I think so the next day, the next evening, some of the bodies were found and even some of the bodies, one of them was my brother, John Michael, the bodies were still warm, kind of like that'll tell you, they were so long in the water before they were rescued, you know, that they were so long alive, like it's so sad to think. I suppose at that time there was no great rescue service, you know what I mean, like lifeboat or helicopter service and that, like, you know, not like there is now, thank God, times have changed. So that was a very sad aspect of it, like, you know. Well, from what I can remember, I was young, but I was only 10 years old then. God help us. I think the night before, I can remember vaguely, all right, my mother saying to my father, you know, sitting down inside in the house, and she said, I wonder, will, they, will the weather be suitable, you know, for him to go back to Castletown for Christmas? 
And I think he said they probably will, you know, if the weather was getting bad at night. And then the next morning, I suppose, you know, it was late in the morning, and I think over the radio, all right, something came about a tragedy gone in Kinmere Bay about a boat. And, you know, when you have someone in family yourself, it kind of sinks in, and I suppose it sank into them. But I think I was away up on the road there playing with the football, and I suppose cars were rare then, you know, and to see a car stop at the house. So I think I seen a car going west and stop at the house. And by the time I got back to the house, from what I can remember, my father was going away in the car, and my mother was inside. And she said, oh, they were going away, that they, they were afraid there was an accident, like, you know, and the tragedy. And that maybe, that hopefully, that they were all right. And as the day lingered on, it was coming on over the radio, but there were no names mentioned, like, you know, so. I, I remember very little otherwise of it, like, you know, I, I remember being upstairs and my mother brushing the floor, you know. And I was holding it, I was thin, got help us then, I was holding it, just spent far and she put her hair on around me and said, I hope they're all right, you know. Just when I think back of it, like to said, you know, that's so many years ago, but you still remember little things, you know. From John Michael himself, that's my brother who helped us. I have only a few memories of him, you know, kicking the ball, maybe at the gate of the house and playing around, you know. But one nice memory I have of him, every Sunday, he'd come back from Mass and he'd always bring... He'd always bring back a block of ice cream and the bag of wafers. And I always remember him coming in the door. So he'd have the big garden, white sweater on him, in the back door. They're nice memories. But it was tough on my parents, you know. God help us, he was 21. And it was tough on all their parents, you know, the family. Sure. No older, the island as well, my first cousin. It was tough on his parents as well. You know, he was two young men, like. They broke their heart. Very, very sad. Even though I was so young, I suppose, like, you know, I can still remember a few things about it, you know. I suppose for, as the years went on, I think, you know, it got easier for my father because, you know, he'd go to the pub and have a drink and maybe have a drink too many and he could talk about it, you know. But for my mother, God help us, she was, there were no women going to the pubs, and she was very, she kept to herself, you know, a quiet woman and, she was heartbroken, heartbroken. And I suppose you now you've kind of realised it myself, you know, I have a daughter the other day and she's only 21 and a son coming up next year be 21. And if anything ever happened to him, you know, you would be. But I suppose a sea tragedy is sad, you know, and there's so many, five of them lost together and from a small area, you know, it was very, very sad. But I think with my mother, it was heartbreaking all until she went to her grave. She got different illnesses down through the years, and sure, of course, I was from it, you know. Every time, I there was no girl in our family, and I was the youngest, and I suppose I was always around my mother. And any time I'd go back into the house, you know, if we were out playing, you go back in, she'd be baking the cake, you could see the tears all through the years flowing down her eyes. Very sad. But she got on, you know. She held the family together, and the sea is a dangerous place, to it's a nice place as well, you know. I mean, the sea is nice, but when the sea is rough and fishermen are out, the danger of it, like anything, can happen, you know. It is treacherous and the water is a lovely job in the calm weather, but the bad night and the winter's night, it's not very nice. 
Oh, well, that's what the most of the people around here are brought up with to see, you know. They have a bit of fishing and a bit of farming and whatever, you know. And I, I mean, anyone that did any bit of fishing or been out in the trolley, you know, they know the danger of it, you know. When you're out for three or four days fishing or whatever, or four or five days, and a star comes up, you know what I mean, you have to think of the dangers of it, you know. But I suppose, like, I mean, there's fishermen or fishermen that's all along the water, maybe they don't look at all those dangers, you know, but I think, like, if a tragedy like that happens and you have a family at home, with any family, you know, and I see tragedy, and you have a son or husband or whatever out fishing, that help us, like, you know, you're always thinking of them. You know, thinking that they'd come home safely, of course. There were two fine men, you know, like, two fine-looking men. God help us, you Big, tall lads, like, you know, you Quiet lads. I don't know if I'm listening to people talking about them after, you know what I mean? Very quiet, nice, you know. two fine men, you know. They only lived across the water in Jersey Island, you from us, so... Wasn't too far across, and that's where the boat was going to go through that night, through the Dursey Sound Channel to get to Castletown Bear and to Bert up for Christmas. And it didn't work out that way, God help us, you know. That's life. Ah, but life was, you know, was, was good, as I say, you know. Down through the years, there was ups and downs, of course. It was a thing like that, it never leave more, as I say, around anyone's parents, you know, God help us, you yeah. It's a thing you wouldn't forget, you know. I suppose the years went on, it got easier in some aspects, but I don't think it ever got easier for my mother. No. My mother died, got it was in 68, but you know, I think she was age 73 then, she died in age 68. But she was sick for years, you know, when she was always thinking and always thinking John Michael well, sure, worry do bring on sickness, and you could see it in my mother, you know. It brought her to her grave, God help us. She never, never got over it. Fishing is such a small community. There's so few pe- people fishing around the coast that you know... I know most of the people from Waterford to the Galway. I know most of the people that are fishing. You know, like there's. You intermingle with them all through the year, like the herrings in the Moor East. Then there be prawns, whatever you're around here. You know that people travel around from port to port, so you get to know them also. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people that were drowned. It's in people when you go to sea, it's kind of like a drug it, for some people. Some people, it, they just can't leave it. But I'd have no worries either about my son going fishing or even my daughter going fishing if that's what she wanted to do, you know. If you go to sea thinking, oh, I might be lost, you might as well stay at home, you know. <laughs> like when I, after the accident, I took three months off, I suppose, or four months off. I went fishing on a boat in Skull, and for the first month I couldn't go down the cabin. Like I said, to sleep above in the galley, couldn't go down the cabin. I went down and tried it a few times, 
but it's just I don't know you could get thinking and couldn't take it, couldn't just couldn't stay in it had to to leave it it's strange but whatever there's a a magnetic attraction to the sea once you start in it that you just pull to it that people might leave it for a couple of years but they all seem to go back most of them anyway seem to go back or at least want to go back anyway and when you meet in a pub or I think the first thing you'll ask all them is how's the fishing you know what's the weather like out there and the pull is still there If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.